Are you enjoying Chat Tan Looks 3? If you do enjoy our company, uh, you can interact on a just a dizzying array of online platforms. You can go to our website, www.chat10looks3.com, where you'll have the, all the show notes from every show we've ever done. Thanks, Brenda. Uh, there's also um, a little link through to uh, a bookshop called Bedside Table, where you can purchase, if you'd like, any of the books that we've talked about in the podcast. You can also find merch if Gwen has been up to her terrible tricks and um, putting together diabolically hilarious merchandise. Can you make this a bit snappier? It's going to take us over the 30 minutes. Oh, my God. Are you for real? (laughs) Anyway, uh, you can catch us on Instagram, on Twitter, or join the Facebook group, which is, well, that's just uh, something um, completely else indeed. to King's College. I probably shouldn't brag, but dag, I amaze and astonish. The problem is a lot, a lot of brains, but no polish. I gotta hobble just to be heard with every word. I drop knowledge. I'm a diamond in the rough, a shiny piece of coal, trying to reach my goal. My power of speech, unimpeachable. Only 19, but my mind... Are you going to rap for us? Oh, <laughs> so annoying. <laughs> Are we what? about to be annoying? Um, well, that's from Hamilton. Has, has anyone here listened to the soundtrack of Hamilton? <laughs> yeah, oh, good. <laughs> So, we have spent years with people saying, you've got to listen to Hamilton. You guys would really love it. And as a result, both of us got a bit kind of, you know, couldn't be that good, could it? (laughs) And so resisted. And then she went to see it in London and then I started listening to the soundtrack and now we are just massive pains <laughs> in the bum about the whole thing. I I've can't lis- believe how fast you got addicted to it. Like literally, so we recorded the most recent podcast and then about a week later you texted me and went, I, I am addicted to Hamilton. And I don't think you've ever previously listened to or watched anything that I've recommended oh, even. <laughs> I gave it four years and then I watched The Americans and I was oh, suitably <laughs> apologetic about that. But also my 13-year-old daughter has, has memorised like several songs now and is working through the entire 41-song program to memorise them anyway. Hello, Newcastle, by the way. <laughs> Sorry, it was a bit rude, wasn't it? Hello. <laughs> this is the greatest theatre. Isn't it it's beautiful? Great. And also my favourite thing about this theatre is you eight people. <laughs> in the Muppet wings. Yeah. <laughs> what I would really like. Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. I just would like all eight of you periodically to just heckle yeah. in a kind of, you know, not funny, <laughs> stupid. Do you know, I think of all of the... Um, places that people have asked us to come, I don't think anyone's harangued us more than people in Newcastle. People are really <laughs> nagging. Super nagging. And here we are. Here we are. And that thing where you say, like, going to the Gold Coast or Hobart, and people will be like, yeah, but when are you coming to Newcastle? <laughs> Every post you go, hey, guess what? We've got a show in Hobart. First comment, when are you coming to Newcastle? <laughs> Um, in fact, I got, you heard it, I got heckled on the street a little earlier. Somebody drove past me, wound the window down and yelled out, good luck for tonight, Lee. <laughs> just for, I mean, look, just for clarity, that's not actually a heckle. That's a, like, that's a nice person being nice to you. <laughs> You're a bit battle scarred. Hey, I just realised and it's disturbed me a little, didn't you bring out any, any notes? Oh, they're in your pocket. Oh, thank God. 
Thank God. Oh, I'm, 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 I'm often the least prepared <laughs> just of the two of us, but no, I did have, I did have a few little tiny notes. So, so, sorry to just go back to Hamilton, but say so you're loving it. I can't even tell you. I, it's so clever and so, I just feel so embarrassed that eight years after it's sort of appeared, I'm like, this is amazing. I mean, like, I like to read, you know, Booker Prize winners 20 to 25 years after they've won the Booker <laughs> Prize, just so that nobody can accuse me of being influenced by fashion. <laughs> but it's just, I started listening to it just in my headphones while I was on a slightly busy day pacing around and I found myself just pacing along to it and just feeling this sense of complete... You know when you feel joy that overtakes you just because somebody has executed something so perfectly? There's an, uh, an added energy that comes from inside yourself and it's just this exhilaration. And I think just the ambition of some of the rhymes that they pull off and this sort of frenzied fusillade of genius, like, I mean, I think I, if I had one good idea for a line or a rhyme or whatever, I'd kind of recycle that indefinitely, but this production is just sort of, you know, just genius after genius after genius, and... I might have said this on the last podcast, sorry if I'm did. repeating it's myself. It's going to get annoying. It did, when I saw it, and then when I've listened to it subsequently, I mean, it's a very engaging listen, listen I... I kept thinking, like, a song would come on and I'd go, oh, well, I guess that's the showstopper, isn't it? Like, you know, um, my shot, which just we walked out to, I thought, oh, well, that's the showstopper. Wow, it's early in the show. And then, like, every song would come on, you'd go, wow, another showstopper. And it's just basically a did whole you spit show a little bit? of showstoppers. Did hey? you just spit a little bit? Possibly. I think you did. Did I? Where's it gone? Where's it landed? Gone. Have you seen the T-shirt that she's wearing, by the way? It's nobody puts baby in a corner. Like... Um, I'm wearing a shirt that's uh, designed by my um, Newcastle friend, Dan, who made this design as a lino cut and then got it made into a shirt and sent it to me. <laughs> it is the greatest thing ever. Do, uh, <laughs> um, okay, this is the last time I'm going to pull it back to Hamilton and musical okay. theatre. But I just want to make one final observation. I think one of the things that I liked about it was, you know, sometimes if you see a musical like... Um, like an old school musical, like South Pacific or um, Pirates of Penzance or something, they feel very um, like a fantasy sort of thing. And I mean, I guess the musical feels a bit like a fantasy anyway because people break into song. Um, One of my other favourite musicals is A Chorus Line and like Hamilton, it's actually like a quite gritty sort of realist type thing um and that's what Hamilton made me think of that which and you know A Chorus Line was also a very groundbreaking um musical it sort of did something new with the genre and that's what it felt like Hamilton was doing as well something really contemporary it just it felt like you were just watching a real story get told but also it's it's the sort of story that never gets made into a musical I mean Hamilton is sort of the story of America's first bureaucrat who designed (laughs) the financial system and the banking sector like the postal service but also just manages to be this real hound dog and the whole thing is this extraordinarily sticky story even though it ostensibly is not really the fodder for a completely hit musical have you Um, listened to it enough yet that you have a favorite song Oh, 
that one that we just listened to is still like right. kind of the one that I wake up with in my brain right. and I, you know, and I what resent ab- that. Yeah. What about, have any rhymes particularly grabbed you? Oh, there's a hundred million so of them. But there's, um, there's a cabinet rap at some point where like, you'd be pleased to hear that I've also been emailing the EP of Insiders with all of these like <laughs> links and saying... So, I think you could easily do a package uh, to this Hamilton song. Uh, I mean, next time that Barnaby Joyce runs for the leadership, which, let's face it, will be in about 3.5 seconds, um, it's got to be, you know, um, I'm not giving away my shot, right? Also, could be useful for Bridget McKenzie, because... Cut cut to insiders' headquarters. God yeah. damn it, I knew if she kept hanging around sales this long, this was going to happen eventually. Exactly. God. And I'm like hammering him with these suggestions. And also, you know, when are these colonies going to rise up? I'm like, Coag, that's the next Coag story. Like, just like, sex that up with some Hamilton. You're welcome. And he's like, hi, thank you for your suggestions. Yeah, see you soon, I hope. See you around. Yeah. What so... I think, would you mind if I told you my favourite song? Yeah. <laughs> this reminds me of because I once when went someone... out for dinner with <laughs> I once took Jeremy out for dinner for his birthday and it was like the worst birthday date ever because I, but I organised this fantastic night at the theatre and then I organised a water taxi to take us across oh. like the water to a flash restaurant. He had a terrible cold. Oh. The water taxi was late or we were late. I can't remember. Either way, I got, ended up getting charged double for an already predatory price. Oh. And we got to this posh restaurant and we sat there and, Ellie, and Jeremy's going... <laughs> and this, like, very flash wine waiter turns up and says, um, so, um, with this sort of, like, absolute satchel-sized wine list, and he says, um, so, what's your favourite village in France? Like, what's your favourite what? Village, like, wine-producing village. <sighs> And it was like this terrible moment and Jeremy just like through perfectly gritted teeth says, well, what's your favourite village? That's <laughs> <laughs> like the best and worst moment. Anyway, it was a lovely night but um, possibly just like I always remember that because it was like, well, I can't wait to tell you what I know. So on, in that spirit, what is your favourite <laughs> Hamilton line. Thank you so much for asking, Annabelle. Um, look, I know you're partial to it as well. Um, there's a song that the king sings about when it's clear that, you know, America's going to revolt and he's like, are you joking? Like, we had a deal when you left here that everything was going to be good. And it's a, sort of, they repeated it a couple of different ways, but um, the first reference is like, um, you know, and when push comes to shove, I will send a fully armed battalion just to, to remind you of my love. <laughs> <laughs> and the last line of that song is, I will kill your friends and family to remind you of my love. Oh my God, it's so good. Yep. We are total party bores right yeah, now. Yeah, I like, know. Can it's, you imagine, like, we're like, in the corner with the Pinot Gris going, and what about that line I where, mean, you know... I mean, genius. seriously, eight people, shouldn't you be heckling about now? What do you think? This is why you're like, another the Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> the whole party's just edging away into the garden to, like, smoke furtive cigarettes and whine about us. My okay. favourite line, thanks for asking, yep. is... Um, there's a cabinet battle between Jefferson and Hamilton. And Jefferson, who's from Virginia, is kind of like, are you for real? Like, we're not giving up our... Um, uh, we're, we're not um, 
acceding to your universalized financial system because we in the South are doing like perfectly fine. We are in surplus and only you crazy spendaholics in New York are asking for, you know, further credit. And, um, and Hamilton says, yeah, keep ranting. We all know who's doing the planting. <laughs> and he's like, well, yeah, you might be in credit, but only off the back of your slaves, you pieces of absolute... Yeah, there's, there's another, I can't yeah. remember, it's something about, you know, just st- stay mellow, you know, who knows what you're doing down there in Monticello. Yeah, exactly. Or <laughs> um, okay, now, every live show, we uh, always back in a charity. That's right. And, look, so this, um, this night um, we are donating a proportion of proceedings to um, Jenny's Place. Um so, I kind of learned a little bit when I was um, talking to them over the last couple of weeks. And um, so, they've been um, in operation for 47 years, which is pretty spectacular. Um, so, they run two crisis refuge- refuges and also then 15 transitional properties where um, people can stay for up to 12 months, which is so there's kind of like a suite of services. Um, providing for um, women and children who are living under the threat of domestic and family violence. There's also, they also run an outreach service and Newcastle Domestic Violence Resource Centre. But the thing that I I found really stunning was that I did not know that um, the Hunter region constitutes 10% of all domestic violence assaults, which is kind of extraordinary um, and awful and you know we all know that um, domestic and family violence is a really leading cause of homelessness uh, among women and children in Australia and homelessness is up 17.4% in this region in the last couple of years so anyway they do amazing work and given the horrendous week we just had and I don't think there would be anyone in this room who like us um hasn't been thinking of um, what happened in Queensland this week and thinking um, in increased urgency and desperation about the situation in this country um, and feeling helpless as well. One of the things that you can do is support organisations like Jenny's Place and um, I'm really pleased that we can do a little bit to help them tonight and thank you very much for your contribution. Can I just check, um, I want to know if Kylie made it tonight. Can you just give me a woo if you made it, Kylie? Oh, you made it! Kylie's got a torch. Legend. That could be dangerous. Kylie has been pretty unwell and her friend um, texted me to say she is going to just take every drug available to be able to get to the show. That's why she's waving her torch right right. now. She's on all the drugs. I'll be looking for the lady off her tartars on meds and there she is. (laughs) Hope you're doing well, Kylie. the just yeah speaking of what a bad news week it's been that story was obviously absolutely hideous um the other story that i've just thought about so much this week uh was four corners um just i mean the the things that sort of have i mean many things have stuck with me out of it but one of them was just the courage of those boys and 
I mean, I just loved them both, but the friend, particularly Ned, um, when Paris went to him and said, oh, geez, you know, this happened to me. I think, you know, so-and-so might be gay. And the friend's gone, mate, I don't think it's his sexuality you need to be worried about. I think it's his behaviour. And then he's gone straight to his mum and told, like, I just thought you boys did absolutely everything right. Everything that we tell kids to do, you've done right. Um, and I totally admired them. And I thought their mor- they had more mor- moral clarity, those two boys, as did the other young people interviewed in that, than many of the adults who were meant to be looking after their interests. Um, and it reminded me as well of, you know, Louise Mulligan, who did the story... Uh, Louise Milligan, sorry, who's um, an amazing reporter um, who did another really powerful Four Corners story about a young woman called um, Saxon Mullen who... Uh, these sort of bizarre shouting matches that are about um, kind of ideological warfare and sometimes the combatants value winning the ideological war... I mean, this happens on all sides, I have to say, sometimes, um, more than they value the actual moral question involved. So, yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, when you stripped that story back to um, what was said to Paris, I mean, there's just nobody that could go, well, that was no big deal. Like, I mean, I won't repeat what was said. I'm sure plenty of people saw the story. But, I mean, if that were my son, you wouldn't, you wouldn't go oh, well, storming a teacup or whatever, you'd be enraged. Um, so, yeah, I hope, I hope that for Paris's sake, because he obviously was doing that story because he had had a lot of trouble and he wanted to feel like he was able to now move on with his life. So I really hope that it has actually allowed him to be able to do that. Yeah, well, he's kind of taken the initiative too and, like, resumed control of the situation, yeah. which I think is, like, a hard thing to do but also a super valuable one because whatever happens, he's kind of taken active decisions about it, which is hard to do when you've been mistreated, I think. Anyway, good on you, Paris. And obviously, like, we're in an area where a lot of, like, there's been some great reporting um, about some really, like, terrible things that have happened. So um, I'm really conscious that we're in an area where um, a lot of great work has been done, a lot of brave people have been... Um, so thinking. you've been listening to that Chasing Cosby podcast. Is that <gasps> yeah, about how that was? Ex- is it about the investigation of how that was exposed? Or? Yeah. So you know, I'm on a real podcast. I'm on a massive you podcast. It's all you to talk about. Podcast, podcast. Like, I can't be spoken to. This I is mean, what I'm it's like hanging out with her. Podcast, podcast, podcast. Cake, podcast. Hamilton, podcast. Hamilton, podcast. Cake, cake. Kohlrabi, cake. Podcast. Kohlrabi, cake. Hamilton. I don't think you've missed anything. It's like, that seems fair. It seems really fair. Well, so, I mean, podcasts... I was trying to explain this to a friend of mine the other day who works in TV production. He said, oh, I haven't really got the podcast thing yet. I haven't really listened to any. And I said, well... Um, and I was trying to explain our podcast to him, and, of course, it made no sense because it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I'm like, well, we just sit and crap on about stuff and he said well how do you advertise that one well we don't uh people just know i don't know stop asking questions <laughs> it's like he was trying to establish a business model i'm like oh dude ours, wrong is, the tree. Least, ours is the least useful to extrapolate <laughs> I know, anything from. i know i'm just like i can't tell you anything but i can say that the usefulness of the podcast is a it's so um versatile and agile so that 
like quite a small reporting team can make a high quality podcast that would cost them millions of dollars if they made it as a television show, but they can make it as a podcast and it's a brilliant piece of storytelling and it's cheaper to do so people are more um, versatile. Um, also, you can listen to it while you're doing something else. So, you know, while you're on the bus or on the train or, you know, doing laundry or whatever. And that, for me, is what is the goal. Like, it like it's hoovers up all of these spare fragments of your life that otherwise you'd be just sort of, you know, rolling your eyes and wishing you were doing something else. Now I'm like, I will walk from here to somewhere that's quite far away because it'll allow me to continue listening to this podcast unmolested. Unless, you know, unlike when I try and do it in the shower, when I've got, like, two children and a cavoodle coming in and going, like, ar, ar, ar. That happens all the time. So, um, anyway, Cosby. Uh, Cosby, it's called Chasing Cosby. It's a podcast made by the LA Times. And it really looks at the chronology of the allegations against Bill Cosby and how, um, bizarrely, for quite a long time, despite the fact that there were a number of complainants with very, very similar um, allegations against him, i.e. that he'd um, met up with them, drugged them, and then they'd wake up in their cars where they'd been put by Cosby's security people or whatever. And how could, you know, this continue to be sort of overlooked as a same, um, a similar, you know, matching set of allegations? Um, anyway, so um, two things really shocked me over the course of this um, series. One was that Cosby had been telling jokes in his routines when he was doing stand-up comedy all through the time that he was on The Cosby Show and, and thereafter about slipping women Mickey Finns. Like, it was a regular part of his comedy routine, which I did not realise. And they kind of covered that in the podcast, which is extraordinary. Um, the other thing, the other moment in this podcast that is quite um, incredibly gripping is... After a number of these allegations have been um, laid and the, um, I think it was the Philadelphia um, um, public attorney had refused to proceed with um, uh, criminal charges, he was then commissioned to do a new series of a new show and he was doing publicity for this new show and there's audio of a journalist interviewing him uh, who eventually says... So what about these allegations from all of these women? And Cosby says to him, and as a journalist, it's an absolutely scorchingly awful couple of minutes of audio to listen to because the journalist says, what about these allegations? And Cosby says to him, listen, I think you need to talk to your producer because it's been agreed that you don't get to ask me about those things. Mm. And the journal then says, well... I mean, it's a fair question, you know. And then Cosby says, well, um, there are going to be some consequences for you for asking me these things and I think you need to sort that out because, um, you know, you're not going to get what you want if you're going to persist with this line of questioning. And then the journo sort of says, oh, God, of course, yes, very sorry, and we'll edit it out and oh. there'll be no mention. And you're just like, oh, oh God. Dear. It's... Shocking, yeah. I'm about to um, do... We're doing just some training, internal training at 7.30. I'm about to talk about um, interviewing, and I was thinking today a bit about what I'm going to talk about, and one of them is 
one of the things is social awkwardness in interviews because it's a big, uh, if, you, if you're ever interviewing, I mean, I have to do it all the time, if you're interviewing people where it's an accountability kind of interview, it's not socially um, like anything that you ever do because you spend your whole life avoiding awkward social encounters and asking people about stuff that they don't want to talk about. So it's actually quite difficult to do in the moment, but what you can't do is what that journey did. Oh, dear. Um, um, it is, it, it's really hard to sit down with a person oh. and ask them something that is really aggressive and unpleasant that you know provides them with, like, this horrible experience of totally. your it's conversation, yeah. The only thing to do is just get out of there as fast as possible at the end. But Because like, <laughs> it's just awful. Don't you find that, like, um, that there's the sort of coward's way out, which I have myself employed on a number of occasions, <laughs> I'm afraid, but, you know, not always, which is, like... People say that. <laughs> how would you respond to people who you, what, say this? What, Obviously, not me, but like, how what, would you respond? What would you say to somebody who said blah yeah, blah? blah. <laughs> it's like when you hear that one being employed, you're like, oh. Cosby <laughs> reminds me of the um, '80s because I loved the Cosby Show. I mean, I adored that show. Um, and I just watched this thing on Netflix, which was, um, I just loved it. Um, it was called The Movies That Made Us. There's only four episodes, one of which is Dirty Dancing. Um, Did you get that shirt made after you watched it or what's no, going on there? it was just a happy coincidence that I had it sitting around. Mm-hmm. Actually, I rewatched Dirty Dancing only a couple of years ago. Loved it. It was great. Really? Um, yeah, although I'm sure it's problematic on about a million different levels. But Could just, be. I mean, speaking of which, when I was on holidays over Christmas, I, I don't know why, but I rewatched Cocktail. Are you all right? Oh. <laughs> it was, it was like, just on. It's Tom Cruise and Brian Brown, right? Yeah, and Tom Cruise like, and Brian Brown. Come on. Jamaica. Um, Don't no, I know, I know exactly. Off. I know exactly why I watched it because I'd listened to that Brian Brown podcast on Richard Feidler conversations that I think I talked about. Oh, yeah. And he talked about how much his life changed after cocktail. Anyway, I was zipping around and it was on somewhere. I thought, oh, I'll have a look at that. Oh my god! Speaking of films that, I mean, it was probably bad at the time, but I mean, watching it with a contemporary eye, it is the most sexist, just horrific. There's a bit where. Just allow me to summarise the plot for those of you who don't recall. Um, <laughs> Just in case no one has it directly to mine. <laughs> Tom Cruise and Brian Brown are bartenders and they go off to I think, somewhere in the Caribbean and they're running a bar. Tom Cruise meets this girl that he's sort of Elizabeth keen Shoe. on. Elizabeth Shoe. Um, Pulled that out of nowhere. <laughs> and then Isn't he, that annoying when you've got useless knowledge that like somehow... He cheats on her with this annoying rich woman at the resort, and she finds out and sort of leaves him. And then when he, and you know, he's really devastated because she's actually, you know, his real love. And then when he goes to find her to explain, she's pregnant. Then um, sorry, who's pregnant? Elizabeth Shue. Oh, is she? Tom Cruise. He shows up. And when she calls him out, like, you know, but you cheated on me and so forth, his excuse (laughs) said with complete sincerity and, like, you've got to forgive me is whatever the Brian Brown character's name. But Brian Brown bet me that I wouldn't be able to bed a rich woman. That's what he offers as the actual excuse. No further questions, Your Honour. And expect her to go, oh, well, shit, now that that you've pointed that out, I mean, come back, (laughs) come to mama. (laughs) It was... So bad. The other film that I really Can't you just picture sales like in a like banana lounge watching this like cackling and talking back to the screen? No, she ain't taking you back. 
anyone with you when you were? My friend Claire was with me. She okay. Went through it. Um, the other thing that I watched and I just went, "Are you joking? This is so bad." Was four weddings and a funeral. The, the Andy McDowell character is hideous. She, I mean, I'm a little partial to oh, Hugh Grant. So off, let me give that context. <laughs> so they made it a wedding. They hook up. Fine. Then. He shows up at another wedding. She's engaged to somebody else. Um, they still hook up. He's sort of a little bit heartbroken, but, you know, you knew she was engaged. You know what you're getting into. Then, like, then I think they hook up again, but then she's just being really, like, toying with him a lot. And then she shows up at his wedding when he's finally sort I of I love her on. commitment to recapping this <laughs> plot, by the way. He's finally moving on, and she shows up on the day of his wedding at the church to blow it up and I think what you couldn't have shown up like six months earlier even even one day earlier so that some poor person's not left humiliated at the altar I was just and it would have been a less interesting movie but like I that's was... like still more considerate <laughs> Andy McDowell I was, God I was, I was also very cross what's wrong with the the low pony always why why, <laughs> why? I was um, very cross anyway the no movie... wait I just like so to recap we've just realized that Hamilton's very good and the cocktail is bullshit. <laughs> like that's, that's what we've achieved so we far have, tonight. That's right. Four weddings and the funeral. Don't say we've wasted your money, good burgers of Newcastle. <laughs> so this thing on Netflix that I just stumbled across the other day called The Movies That Made Us, one of them is one of my all-time favourite films, Die Hard. <laughs> the greatest action film ever made and one of the greatest films ever made. And so it's basically... I noticed in Sales' notes she was like, the movies that made us with a sort of like mad lady underlining. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know what that is. But now I realise it's a cover for you to talk about Die Hard You can't again. imagine my joy when I sort of... I think the first one was Dirty Dancing and I sort of thought, oh, I wonder if there's any chance they've got Die Die Hard, yes! <laughs> um, but there was this brilliant bit of trivia. I mean, it's all just basically about the making of and so Argyle, who is the... Um... <laughs> There's a making of Die Hard? <laughs> I assume it's just like... Give Bruce Willis some scotch and then just Bruce Willis like... wasn't in it, actually. It was everyone really? basically but Bruce Willis. What, what, um, what's the point of it then? Well, because people can talk about Bruce Willis, right? You don't have to have Bruce Willis there. Is there a Die Hard movie without Bruce Willis in it? No. <laughs> Sorry. You're not explaining yourself very clearly. It is a little TV show about famous things that got made in the 80s. Okay, right, but right? Die Hard always had Bruce Willis, right? Correct. Well, actually, this, was, this goes to the heart of the bit of trivia I was about to tell you, oh which God. is... How welcome, okay. Di so you might remember Die Hard was the film that made Bruce Willis a, as a movie star. Prior to that, he was in a TV show called Moonlighting, which was very popular, yeah, and a great show. But nobody really thought Bruce Willis could make it as an action star. And when you think of the action movies and that genre of the era, it's Schwarzenegger, it's Sylvester Stallone, it's big, muscly dudes. It's not weedy little like dudes like Bruce Willis. And so nobody thought Bruce Willis was having a movie career as an action star. So the film studio... There's a scriptwriter there who's working on an adaptation of a 1979 novel called Nothing Lasts Forever by an author called Roderick Thorpe. How that novel existed was Roderick Thorpe wrote in 1966. <laughs> there is nothing wrong with this anecdote so far. I know. I'm like, I'm purely enjoying it. Like, just. Uh... <laughs> 
My tittering is really only just a, um, an expression of how deeply <laughs> and richly I'm enjoying your absorption <laughs> in this otherwise completely unremarkable point. But, yeah, go, go, go. Stick, stick yep. with me. I'm with you. In 1966, Roderick Thorpe wrote a novel called The Detective, which was very successful and it was turned into a film starring Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra was so thrilled with how it went that he said, I want to be in another thing. I want to be in the sequel to The Detective and Roderick Thorpe has to write that. And so Roderick Thorpe took 13 years and he finally wrote Nothing Lasts Forever, which came out in 1979. They couldn't really sort of make it work at the time and so that film starring Frank Sinatra never got made. And so Nothing Lasts Forever was just sitting around in somebody's drawer and then they decided, you know what, this has actually got potential. It was, you know, the, the terrorist sort of heisty type thing. And so they give it to a screenwriter. He turns Nothing Lasts Forever into the script for Die Hard. But it's called Nothing Lasts Forever. The studio exec has a look and goes, I love this, but let's call it Die Hard. But they are contractually obliged to give first dibs on the lead role to Frank Sinatra. <laughs> They had to go to Frank Sinatra and go, Frank, we have finally adapted Nothing Lasts Forever. <laughs> so this was now in 19, I so think, was 89. was he still alive? Yeah, so, but he was like 80. <laughs> so they've gone to Frank and gone, the role of John McClane. <laughs> this is the adaptation. No. They did. And thank God. Okay, this is actually a really good story. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Frank Sinatra goes, I'm too rich and I'm too old. <laughs> He passed, and so then that allowed them to go and look for somebody else. And somehow Bruce Willis's name came up, but when they played the promo, when, it, when the cinemas it first landed and it was Bruce Willis, people openly laughed when the promo played and Bruce Willis was the person who came up. And they ended up, I don't know if you'll remember, but the sort of most famous poster of, for Die Hard, it does have Bruce Willis's image in it. But it was so thoroughly ridiculed that a couple of weeks before the release of Die Hard, they removed Bruce Willis from the no. poster. And the, the sort of main poster that was used at the cinematic time of release was a photograph of... Nakatori Plaza of the building. They thought wow. the building was better able to sell the film than Bruce Willis. And then, of course, it was such a fantastic film. And it was partly because Bruce Willis did reinvent the notion of the action hero, which was the sort of reluctant action hero who just sort of finds themselves in this circumstance. And then, of course, that was ripped off forevermore, like Die Hard on a Bass, Die Hard on a... On um, Alcatraz, Die Skates, Hard on everywhere, yeah. like just everything, Die Hard, Die Hard, Die Hard. Um, so, yeah, I really enjoyed, and there's tons of nice little um, bits. The other bit, which this is actually a very famous anecdote about Die Hard, so you might have heard it, about, do you know the one about... I really probably haven't. Alan Rickman falling off the building? Oh, I know that that happened. Yeah, yeah. so there's a... I mean, Alan Rickman in, in that film is well, so... That's brilliant. one of the key reasons it's become such a famous film, of course. He's the best baddie ever. So there's a scene right at the end oh, where... Rutger Hauer, though. <laughs> he's a worse baddie. He's a good baddie. Um, so there's a scene where um, Alan Rickman falls from the building and they shoot it from a camera above him and so you see him sort of disappearing, looking, you know, fearful as he sort of disappears. And they had a gigantic sort of air mattressy thing or whatever it is he falls 30 feet or something and lands in it and then they get rid of it in the you know edit in post um and so alan was you know understandably nervous but wanted to do it and so but they thought you know what we will get we're only going to probably get one take on this because we're not going to keep dropping alan rickman off the building although <laughs> so, i mean you know, so um it's not the stupidest idea <laughs> 
<laughs> so we'll tell Alan that we're going to release him on the count of three. <gasps> but every, no. everyone except Rickman was prepped that they were releasing on one. <laughs> <laughs> And so the look, if you ever watch that scene, the look on Alan Rickman's face is genuine terror. <laughs> oh, God, okay, all right. I'm, I know. I'm woman enough to admit that I was wrong. That was a really good story. And Thank you. And I'm sorry for Thank you. being so sniffy about it when you launched into it. Okay, let's hear your anecdote. Um, look, I... This is actually, it's just occurred to me, one of the fleet of podcasts that I've been listening to um, recently is there's one called You're Wrong About, and it's just revisiting sort of um, stories from the past and just sort of having a fresh look at them. And um, do you remember, like, it was basically your memory of um, moonlighting that um, twigged me to telling the story. Um, do you remember Murphy Brown? Yeah. Right, so there's this whole episode of this podcast called You're Wrong About, which goes back to look at the role that Murphy Brown um, played in this sort of um, um, social conservatism movement in the United States. And it's about Dan Quayle, who was um, a VP candidate who obviously um, met a sticky end, but um, took aim during um, a public appearance at Murphy Brown for getting pregnant out of wedlock and made this into this sort of campaign oh, thing yeah, of his. And um, anyway, it's, um, this story doesn't have a punchline. It now occurs to me, <laughs> except that I really, you know... I'd, Mine had Frank I know, Sinatra. it had so much detail <laughs> and now I'm squirming because I'm like, it was a really interesting podcast and I had never really remembered just how much, you know, Candice Bergen um, had to um, uh, answer for in terms of moral depravity in the I United a, States. Love a behind-the-scenes podcast. Yeah. They could. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> but um, before we finish with Frank Sinatra too, he is actually the um, subject of one of the most interesting stories ever about Bob Hawke, which was when Frank Sinatra came to do a tour while um, Bob Hawke was still the head of the ACTU. Um, he landed in Australia, Sinatra that is, and made some... Um, really disparaging remark about a female journalist. Oh, that's right, yeah. And all of the unions just went out in protest against Sinatra's treatment of this woman and they would not fly him from city to city. Like, it was a transport union oh. bar. They would not service his plane. They would not carry his bags. They would not touch anything to do with Frank Sinatra. They wouldn't, you know, take the tickets at the door. It was like a full block. So how did he get around? Against Sinatra. Well, what happened in the end was um, Hawke went in to visit Sinatra to sort out a solution because they were kind of Sinatra fans. This sort of tour mm. had to continue. Sinatra wouldn't apologise. And so Hawke tells the story um, of or he used to tell the story, of going in to see Sinatra in his suite at the wherever he was and negotiating like a gangster with this gangster. <laughs> and his main recollection, apart from the fact that they, you know, kind of had a communion, like a fairly brutal exchange, was that Sinatra was wearing a corset at the time and he was just like, couldn't oh. keep his eyes off this sort oh. of, you know unusual undergarment wow. that Sinatra was wearing. But, like, it's a great Hawk story. I mean, he's got a bunch in his, oh. um, in his arsenal, but, like, 
the one about, you know... It's a bit puncturing of the myth of Frank Sinatra, isn't it? Right, See because him, he was... When you said before, like, he said, I'm too old and too rich, I mentally added, and a bit too chubby, probably, <laughs> given, like, you know, what Bob Hawke said about his undergarments. Anyway, he ended up apologising and the, the, the tour seamlessly continued, but there you go. Now, we have both watched the Taylor Swift documentary... Speaking Miss of... Miss Americana. Have yeah. many people here watched it? Yeah. yeah. It was... I, I enjoyed it. Did you like it? So, I watched it with my 13-year-old um, daughter and, I mean, I have a kind of niggling love for Taylor Swift, which I've periodically loathed myself for, but I kind of... The music or her persona or what? Not her persona at all. Like, I don't find her terribly interesting as a person, but... I respect the fact... Well, I'm sorry. My, my. But she writes really catchy songs, she right? Like, she's an incredibly um, clever and consistent composer and lyricist. And anyone who writes their own stuff... And I know that she's got a massive machine behind her and she is criticised for sort of using her influence and for whining about things and all that sort of stuff. But when you strip it all back, I think, that chick writes really good songs. And listening to that Dolly Parton podcast that you made me listen to made me think more about, like, women who write their own songs and who often are a little bit less lionised than great genius male lyricists and composers. Um, and she's been doing it since she was, like, 13 or something. And the thing that struck me about this documentary, Miss Americana, is that... And it's something that I was really pleased for my daughter to see. She kind of goes back through what she looked like and how she was behaving at various stages of her career, which started out super early. And there's all this footage of her, you know, at age 12, you know, winning awards and singing and being fabulous and whatever. And she looks back and she says, I just wanted to please people. That's all I wanted to do. And so for years I did everything that I knew that I had my power to do to make people like me and think that I was doing a good job and approve of me. And the hyper-extension of that was sort of having an eating disorder, um, being painfully thin, being unhappy, not really knowing what she was doing on this earth apart from pleasing people and fulfilling their expectations of her. And that... I found to be a really valuable part of that documentary because she was pretty frank about it and she also... A lot of the documentaries filmed of her just sort of kicking around in a T-shirt and writing songs and um, being not that, I think. Yeah, it's... I think it's easy sometimes with people that are as famous as her. They're almost... They seem like almost a cartoon character, not like a real person. So I, I found it... One of the bits I found quite affecting was hearing her talk about that incident at the VMAs when Kanye West said, um, oh, Beyonce made the best film clip of all time. Yeah, which is true. That single ladies film clip is amazing. Um, my seven-year-old recently was taught by my friend Joe to do the moves to that. <laughs> Good. <laughs> and then um, Joe was trying to teach her how to, like, run up the wall, like Beyonce <laughs> does at some point, and then just said... Joe's like, I tried to do that at a bar once and I worked out that that didn't work and, and so you probably shouldn't try it either, seven-year-old. But, um, I mean, obviously, I think anyone watching that as it happened thought that that was a real dog act by him to do that. Um, 
But and I as thought much that as would we have love been Bay. that would have been hurtful um, to Taylor Swift. But I hadn't really given much thought at all to what like the sort of detail of her experience. And then she sort of or went really through it. Cared about these kind of like really. you know kind of these cartoon characters. Yeah, who, spats. Yeah, and when it's you like get this idea that spats between superstars are kind of weaponized. You know, you care about it as much as you more. care about Roadrunner dropping something on Coyote. Like it just you know, doesn't, they seem like a cartoon. So her, particularly in the context of talking about how she was a real people pleaser and that she'd been conditioned to want and need praise all the time and the effect it had on her as a 17-year-old to have somebody that she really admired, Kanye West, do that to her. And then also the crowd started booing and she thought that they were booing for her. And so um, she said that really threw her. But I felt like it was a sort of, it was a coming of age sort of story really, wasn't it, about how she had developed as someone who'd been very famous and successful at a super young age. Age, how I think she was about 29 in the doco, around that sort of age. Um, She's like, I'm nearly 30. I'm not sure what that's going to mean. <laughs> yeah. mm. um, it was interesting to see her evolving into somebody who felt like, well, now I don't want to have to please people. I want to please me a little bit more. Um, and it won't surprise you to know, I did also really enjoy the process of seeing her working on songs and some of them that you know are quite famous songs. That process of, okay, I've got this little bit of something and she thinks she'd be going through it with the producer. I've got like these three lines that I think are really good, but I don't have the rest. And then they'd be sort of brainstorming it. I thought that was super insightful seeing how all of that works. So I thought it was worth watching. Yep. I was, um, I was pleased to have watched it with my kid and I also independently enjoyed it. The other thing we've both watched that I've been dying to talk to you about, but we saved it. That's not funny. I just, I, I sounded insincere. I did enjoy it. <laughs> I did it. I did enjoy it. And I thought... I quite like you, Taylor Swift. Yes. Um, we've saved to talk about for tonight that we've both watched Goop Lab with Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> Episode one. So, to be absolutely honest about this one, we did agree to, to watch Goop Lab. Uh, episode one. Um, and I did start watching Goop Lab episode one. I really did. and But I was like... I got home from a long day and Jeremy went and saw a band and then spotting a gap in the marital bed, my youngest child said, I'm sleeping in your bed tonight. I'm like, yeah, all right, go on, kid. And so I was watching it on a laptop because if she sleeps in my bed, she's like, well, you're coming to bed at 8 o'clock too. Yeah, that's like, what mine wants yeah, as well. Right. Yeah, So your bed, my rules. I'm yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> But then I secretly love going to bed at 8 p.m. So Same. that's like, it's I'm not very a massive problem. So, <laughs> but I thought, I've got to watch this goop thing. And I don't want my seven-year-old to hear anything about vaginal candles or anything. <laughs> so I'm like, I'll put some headphones on. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 for anyone that doesn't know what that is, there's a candle that Gwyneth Paltrow released. And the title of the candle is, This Candle Smells Like My Vagina. Because bold. It's bold. Because when they were doing their candles, can we hear it scents, from the Muppets? That's rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's all right. Um, when they were doing their candle scents, one of them Gwyneth sniffed, and she apparently said, "Oh, this smells like my vagina." And everyone thought, "Oh, that's so hilarious. Let's call one of the candles that." Actually, while we're on that sidetrack, I printed out. <laughs> wow, she's prepared some documents for a case we got onto. You know, the thing that's really disturbing is I think that Gwen wants to bring out a Chat Ten candle. <laughs> Ah, oh, merchandise. 
Um, when? So the cut got some of their staff to review um, the This Smells Like My Vagina candle. Can you stop saying it? Like, I mean, I'm fine with every part of what you keep saying, but I just think... <laughs> <laughs> the goop the goop copy calls it perfect as a candle and this is sorry this is the cuts review because what's better than inviting guests into your home having them compliment you on the lovely scent and then humbly saying oh thanks it's the new vagina candle that i picked up anyway it's sold out apparently but what does it really what does it does it really smell like what it says it smells like here's what several cut members thought alison p davis features writer this smells like a vagina that's douching summer's eve too frequently and will probably end up with a yeast infection. <laughs> and it needs some muskier bass notes, to be honest. <laughs> Bridget Reed, writer. No vagina on God's green earth. Kathleen Howe, beauty director. Maybe if you asked a bunch of teen boys who had never been near a vagina, they'd say, yeah, like this. <laughs> Erica Smith, beauty writer. I don't think so. It's definitely not an aspirational vagina smell. <laughs> I'd be concerned if it smells like that. Sarah Spelling's fashion writer. It smells like a vagina if you've only been ever exposed to the concept through tampon commercials. This is very much a conceptual vag. <laughs> Madeline, Madeline Adler, senior writer. No, needs more umami. <laughs> I think, look, I mean, I think Gwen's knockoff idea was, you know, <laughs> aspirational. She wanted to release uh, immediately a candle that says, this smells like my crack. <laughs> Just as a sort of as in crack reference. chocolate, caramel, yeah. Yeah. you know, blah, Which actually blah, blah. would be a really nice candle, like a chocolatey, caramelly one, but yeah, but anyway. friend, Miranda Murphy, vetoed it. She said, absolutely She's not. Yep. You really want that associated with your brand. Her nickname and is we said, Pitfalls Murphy. <laughs> it sounds like a pitfall. We said, no, we don't, Gwen. What a terrible idea. <laughs> I just think, like, shouldn't Gwyneth just open up a shop called Orifice Works now? Like, where it's just, like, <laughs> colour-coded, like, just a big trolley. <laughs> you know, Look, what is... One of the early lines in the Goop Lab episode one, which you obviously fell asleep. No, yeah. that's not true. I think I, I sort of was definitely awake until about the 18-minute mark. Okay. And then I did that thing where I, you know, I mean, I'm 47. I've been doing this for so many years where you think, I'll just rest my eyes for a bit <laughs> and then I'll be refreshed. <laughs> and then I will reopen them and I will watch the rest of this um, Gwyneth Paltrow episode about taking psychotropic drugs in order to get less weird. Yes. Um, that was... And well, then, I interestingly, so the topic for episode one is taking psych psychotropic drugs, as Crab says. And so what they do is they send a number of Goop staff, notably not... Employees. I just think this is a possible workplace health and safety issue. Could but be. I mean, look, I just... It's a gut feel. I haven't explored it. I but, did notice yeah. Gwyneth wasn't one of them. But they yeah, sent she them was off to... busy having something steamed at the time. They, like, <laughs> they send them off to take mushrooms to see what happens and to help them deal with some issues and so forth. Um, I have actually read some serious articles about the use of psychotropic drug, drugs and looking at them and why they became stigmatised in the sort of 1950s and 60s and so forth. But anyway, so it is a serious topic. But um, anyway, early in the doco in this episode, they, they go, you know, at Goop Lab, we like to be open-minded. And it made me realise that actually I had started watching it with a real attitude of closed-mindedness and hostility. And so... 
because I was just looking for stuff to mock and ridicule. And then I thought, you know what? No, don't watch it like that. Because if there was one thing I learned from any ordinary day and doing the research for that is people have all... Life is extremely difficult and people have all sorts of ways of coping with it. And if the, if what gets you through the shitty hard slog of life is you believe in crystals or God or, you know, vagina candles or whatever, and that act, actually helps you, bloody, that is great. Because anything that you've got is fantastic, any coping tool. So I thought, all right, I'm not going to be so judgy. I'm just going to watch it and see, you know, what comes out of it. <laughs> but I just was offended by the use of terms like we're using psychedelics as a healing modality. Like, no, I'm healing modality. This is a sacrament so we can be with the spirit of the mushroom. <laughs> I just can't. I just can't. There was a chap at one point going on and on about various, you know, issues that he'd had in his life and how he'd taken all sorts of other drugs and, you know, been punched in the face by people and sought other forms of therapy. And then the person who was conducting um, the um, procedure in the... Somewhere in the Caribbean or somewhere, wasn't it? Um, what was it? Yeah, it was... Um Oh, was it Aruba or somewhere like that? I can't remember. Anyway. Aruba, Jamaica. We keep getting um, back to cocktail, don't we? So uh, that was entirely accidental. Um, <laughs> and then this therapist just says, thank God you've come to the proper place to process this. And I'm like, yes, in a Netflix documentary <laughs> about a lady who you work for who peddles yoni eggs. Like, that is absolutely the responsible way for you to work through these quite profound issues. Like, good choice. Reminds me of On that. television, while you're being filmed, getting absolutely off your chops reminds, on some fungus. Yeah. Reminds me of that Marina Hyde article you and I both loved about Brad Pitt where he just let a whole lot of stuff, very personal information out a few years ago. And um, in it he said something like, you know, I've been through a few therapists before I found the right one and Marina Hyde wrote something like oh I'm glad you found the right one who would give the green light to you hawking Ralph Lauren in dank caverns around the world while <laughs> spilling your guts about everything to do with your life <laughs> yes I guess everybody has their own way of making themselves feel better and I don't judge so if the way you cope is going to dank caverns and hawking Ralph Lauren who am I to judge that mm. As you note, though, it's only Paltrow's staff that are doing this on camera. <laughs> I mean, that has got to be a watertight employment agreement, I'm thinking. Now, are you literally doing anything other than listening to podcasts? Uh, Books. Actually, huh, well, you know, now that you ask, yeah, I have written a couple... I have written... I haven't written any books in the last two weeks, but I have read a couple of books, and I have a a pretty exciting literary announcement to make and that is that I have read the uh, joint 2019 Booker Prize winner uh, in fewer than 10 years after that prize was bestowed, <laughs> which is a real breach of personal <laughs> protocols for me. Normally, my approach to like really serious prize winners is, oh, I'm sure it can't be that great. Sounds a bit boring. Uh, and then I leave it for, you know, ideally 
10 to 15 years and then I read it and I'm, then I lose my mind about how great it is and then lecture my friends uh, about it, <laughs> even though everybody in the actual literal world knew that it was great before, well before I ever got around to reading it. So I, uh, I read... Girl, Woman, Other by <laughs> Bernadine that up. Evaristo. I thought you were about to say, I, so I read 1984. No. <laughs> <laughs> God, you're awful. No, I read Girl, Woman, Other. So my friend Sue was reading it over the summer. She said, it's really good. And of course, why would I uh, believe the entire Man Booker panel when I could just listen to my friend Sue, who confirmed that it was really good? <laughs> And I absolutely smashed through it and loved it. And I'm now embarrassingly recommending it to everybody that I know. Okay. Despite that it has already been endorsed by a higher authority. I think we can all <laughs> like. So has anyone here read it? Twelve hands. There. Whoop, whoop, whoop. It's really good. It's um so it's one of these books, so it's a it's compulsively readable, and it is um, chapter by chapter tells the story of um, a different woman and as you read through it they are all black um, British women living in the UK at different times in um, oh, over the last century I'd say and as you read through you start to understand that they are connected to each other I love books like that where there's this sort of structure that it merges over the course of the novel. And so you meet all of them. And the first chapter is about this playwright called Amma, who's written this sort of play about kind of lesbian warriors. And then as you get through the book, some of them are actually seeing the play or they're related to her in some way. And it's this, this sort of um, beautiful patchwork of stories of all of these completely individual women and I just couldn't stop reading it. It's funny and powerful and beautiful and the pattern that it increasingly assumes and composes over the course of the work is um, very satisfying. So I read this week, um, there was a post in the Facebook group and somebody had put photographs of three books that were going on holidays or something or other and they said, which of these three books should I read? And the three books were Olive Kitteridge by Elizabeth Strauss. So you were just like, that one, because you love that. I do. The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt, which I don't love as much as Olive Kitteridge, but I quite enjoyed it. And the third book was Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. Oh, dear. <laughs> now, wow. Is this about to be bad? I think I'm going to get run out of Newcastle based on that reaction. <laughs> so I saw it and I thought, wow, I loved Olive Kitter. And so there was a spirited discussion about what was, um, you know, which books people thought. And I thought, well, geez, like plenty of people weighing in for where the crawdads sing. And um, that's I've pretty... heard that it's really great. I haven't read it, but... Well, and I thought, you know, geez, people think it's better than Olive Kitteridge. It must be great. So I jumped into it. Um, I'm sorry to say, I thought it was just a sort of a cut above a Mills and Boone. <laughs> yeah, I. We're going to have pass some microphones around soon, so if somebody wants to, so. <laughs> I'd be curious to hear from someone who liked it as to what you liked about it. The, the plot is basically. I mean, I read it to the end. This is like, you think she's a nice person, and then halfway through <laughs> the interview that you're doing with her on 7:30, she's like, so anyway, <laughs> that's this moment. Um, the plot is basically a 
woman is a hermit who lives in a marsh and there's two blokes. I feel that there's a more sympathetic way you could be, like, <laughs> narrating this. There's two blokes. Two blokes. With whom she's involved, only, only one of whom she's, is the love of her life. And there's a murder mystery sort of woven through. I yeah. feel, not having read the book, that I, I could possibly pitch that better, like, <laughs> to, a, to, to a publisher. <laughs> but, like, so, God. yeah, so when we get to the Q&A, someone enlighten me what I've missed there, because I just... And I'll be right behind you, like, about maybe a kilometre and a half <laughs> behind you, but, like, definitely behind you. It's true, like, there are microphones and we are going to take some questions, which um, seems unwise we'll now, I mean, frankly. Um, five, ten minutes. All right. Now, what you do, and this is what She's the training will be... a bit de deeper. The training I'll be giving at 7.30 is when you do have something that's going to be unpalatable, you seed it in the middle of a few other things so you can recover. So now allow me to speak about Dear Mr. You. <laughs> now, actually, I should give you a turn. Have you got any other books you want to talk about? Um, well, I have no idea what that book is that you're waving around and I wouldn't mind hearing about it. So okay. why don't you have a All go right, and try in. and redeem yourself in some way. <laughs> this is like, do you, do okay. you remember when um, we were doing something at the Sydney Writers' Festival a few years back and at some point at this like quite, in this quite packed hall at the Sydney Writers' Festival, so like the full kind of, yes, I fancy myself as a literary fan kind of audience, um, Sales has just gone, well, I mean, there's a few things you realise over the course of your life. And for me, it's like, I will never read a book by Charles Dickens. <laughs> and there's this kind of like, oh, like an audible sound like, yeah. <laughs> from the audience. You, you felt and, the room turn. Yeah. Yep. And it was just like a, a mob after that. Like, I mean, they were just like putting their neck scarves on sticks oh. and like soaking it in gasoline and then just like <laughs> lighting it. There was just a filthy right. coming for you. And then the next time we did something at Sydney Writers Festival, the New South Wales president of the Dickens Society came along and like hopped up to ask a question and it was like, I challenge you to select Dickens' novel and read it. And I'm like, you know... Taylor so, Two Cities, dude, just read it. It's not very long. It's quite pacey. Get you out of a spot. She hasn't done it. <laughs> so, Dear Mr. You is a collection of essays by Mary Louise Parker, who is an actor. Okay. Um, she is, was in the film adaptation of one of my favourite books, Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe by Fanny Flagg. She was in a show that I really loved the first few seasons of called Weeds. She's been in tons of different things. You, you're Weeds is great. Weeds was great, yeah. Fried Green Tomatoes. So good, yeah. Sure. Anyway, Better so... Better than cocktail, I'd go so bold as to say. <laughs> it is a collection of... It's all written in the second person. It's a collection of letters to various men from over the course of her life. It, it was... But hasn't she been, like, royally, like, done mm. over by a couple of hound dogs? Yes, the, the most like, famous... Not that I'm a regular reader of supermarket tabloids, but I do seem to remember that she was, like, yes. spectacularly... It's a very famous story about her that she was... When she was eight months pregnant to Billy Crudup, he left her for Claire Danes. Um... Terrible, like, and she so what sort was of. Billy caught up in recently that I Morning Wars, and he was great. Right. But every time I saw him, I was like, Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, man. And I remember she showed up at the Golden Globes not long after she'd had the baby, and she got a very rousing sort of round of applause. But I mean, oh God, just so so difficult. Anyway, 
I thought it, it has been incredibly well reviewed, um, this book. And I, was, I actually got onto it because I was reading an article um, and it was talking about a, a lecturer at a top university in creative writing and she was saying how much she admired this book of essays and what a great writer she thought Mary Louise Parker was. And so it just it sounded interesting to me. I assumed it would be a collection of letters, maybe, you know, one to her dad and a billion to former lovers. And, and I assumed like there'd be like... Half a dozen to Billy Crudup. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> just saying. And um, so, but what it actually is, is often it, it'll be, there are letters to her father and other like quite significant men in her life, but often they're letters to sort of people that have been fleeting acquaintances or she comes at major people or men in her life or events in her life from a sort of oblique angle, which I'll come back to in a sec because I'll get back to the Billy Crudup thing. But just to read you, I wanted to start by reading you one bit of writing I thought was really lovely, which is um, the essay is called... Oh, Dear she's Risk Taker. Bent, she's bent the page over to mark it. <laughs> I can see it from here. Dear Risk Taker. And it's about... It's to um, a rock star, she doesn't name who it is, but it's to a rock star of whom she's a gigantic fan and has been her whole life. And so the first part of the essay is about um, how when she was a teenager, I'm sure everyone relates to this, when you're a teenager and you have certain rock stars that you like and you listen to their albums over and over and over again and you feel like they're speaking to you and that they understand you and, and so forth and you feel sort of con very connected to them and she talks about, you know, that kind of thing and looking into his face on the album cover and just feeling a connection and then as an adult she goes to a, a gig and he says, um, when he's, she talks about how giving he is in the show, in the performance and he says to her, you know, basically, why wouldn't you be? Because we are the custodians of people's memories. And I thought, that's so true about music. Um, I've been thinking recently, because as I've said a few times, Spotify has really changed my life. And I've been thinking when you listen to new music, it's quite liberating because it doesn't come with any memories. There's no baggage with new music. Anyway, so th this musician was very conscious that when you're doing a concert that, you know, it's very um, emotional for people. Anyway, she talks about how just much she admires him and that attitude and then she writes sometimes I still have to go back and sit on the swing set with you at midnight feel myself reflected in the broken but unbeatable gaze of another misfit toy your songs were so often about an elsewhere a promised land where things would be okay like the three sisters insistent longing for Moscow amidst the slamming doors in your songs was a tenderness I was dying for listen to you sing about it romance grew in me like a lotus in the mud and you always held your car door open so nicely in my dreams. I could sigh just remembering it now. Always looking at me like I mattered. Who cares if you were trapped inside vinyl? It got me through, dreaming of your back seat, and that was Moscow enough for me. <laughs> so it's just lovely, lovely writing. But when I said before that she comes at things from an oblique way, of course you're sort of reading thinking, oh, is she going to like let rip it? Billy Another Crudup. bigger dog-eared... Um, and here. just have to keep reporting these <laughs> atrocities as they come to my attention. I'm like the UN special rapporteur for atrocities against books. <laughs> so this essay is called Dear Mr. Cab Driver. Um, and the premise of it is she's gotten a cab, she's in a hurry to get somewhere, um, she's eight months pregnant, and he starts... Sorry, is Billy Crudup still on the scene or is he... He's not been... Billy Crudup's name and none of the circumstances are ever mentioned. So I'm, only, I'm bringing this external knowledge to the book, right? It's never, none of that's ever mentioned. So she goes... She gets in the cab 
she's in a hurry, he goes in the wrong direction and she, they start having a fight and it turns into an absolute screaming, like almost disturbing level of rage kind of fight with this cab driver and she keeps telling him to go one way and he's like, I'm getting you there, I'm taking you and she's like, this is not the effing right way. So let me just read you what happens. Um, he, he turns right. Um, no, she says, now turn right. No, that is left. And I said, right. Okay, now stop. Stop the motherfucking cab. Stop. I had the door open before you were even a block from my apartment, but it slammed shut again when I let go to dig in my purse for money. You muttered at me with your sitar music blaring as I threw a $10 bill onto the front seat and slid over very slowly to the door. You turned off your music. Hurry up and get out of my cab. Get out, you shouted. I said, I can't hurry. Go. I'm not taking you to anywhere. You are very awful. I don't want you anymore. You were slapping the, sleep, the seat with your map and waved it around in celebration of your being rid of me. I was halfway out of the cab and stopped. I turned around ungracefully and I said hoarsely, no one does. My voice was shot and I barely got out. Look at me. You turned and looked. I think for the first time, because you stopped waving your flag map. My life is worse than yours in this moment, I wailed. I am alone. Look, see, I'm pregnant and alone. It hurts to even breathe. Your hand slowly went to your mouth. I'm trying to get through it, but I'm by myself every night and every morning and no one, nothing helps. I'm sorry I yelled. I can't get my shoes on anymore. Please, I know I am awful. That's been made clear, but look at me. Please, look at me. I wasn't yelling. My voice was small. I wiped my mouth with the back of my hand and tried to decide if I should keep talking. And then I said, no, don't, really. You don't have to, so why would you? You made a gesture. I didn't know what it meant. It was a raising and dropping of your hands in your lap, but I couldn't decrypt it. And I got out and carefully closed your door, walking up the block, stopping to throw my piece of paper in the trash. And then she goes on to write, I'm sorry, because maybe my life wasn't worse than yours in that moment, but I was just having a terrible terrible time and that's how she writes about that experience and so there's lots of yeah it's amazing isn't it um and there's lots of things like that that she comes out one of the most moving essays is the last one which is written it's dear oyster picker and it's about she's talking to this oyster picker about oh, I'm thinking about you and how you do your job and how you do this and that and pluck oysters and the salty water and blah 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 and, you know, you don't know this, but I want to thank you. And then it, it's her, one of her father's dying wishes in the final week of his life is that he says, oh, it's a bit too much trouble, but gee, I'd love to have an oyster. I'd love to have some oysters. And they go racing around the family and they find some oysters. And then she's thinking about the person who that morning was out there, you know, getting the oysters that she then is able to feed to her father and how thrilled her father is to be able to have them. So it's, it's like that. It's like really, really affecting and um, so original and it's just really, really great and I highly recommend it. Wow, I never heard of that book until you started brandishing and, you know, crushing it with your <laughs> page-folding ways. Um, how, have we 
just completely hoovered up yeah, our we time? Are. We yeah, we are. Have. So we have to take some questions. But Okay. Um, yeah. um, the only thing that I'll say quickly before um, we do some questions is that I have found a really great cake. A super cake, like a really... Podcast, 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 Hamilton cake, podcast, Hamilton cake. <laughs> it's a really good cake, Sales. Like, just don't shut me down. So, um, I do a, um, a political newsletter for the ABC, which you can sign up to on the ABC website. And um, there's a lovely and very talented reporter in the Canberra Bureau called Brett Worthington, who assists me with it, like, putting, like, links together and stuff. And he's, like a great journo, but also a really great baker. And um, we were chatting on Thursday about the latest um, newsletter and he said, oh, have you made the lemon olive oil cake? And I'm like, I don't think I've made that cake. And he said, well, a friend of mine made it for me and then I made it for Laura Tingle's birthday and it's like the greatest cake. And I said, well, just send me the recipe uh, with all speed, my good man, which he did. And it's... Um, it's from um, a cookbook called Ostro by um, Julie Busuttel. I can never pronounce her name properly, Nishimura. Um, and it is the most gloriously simple, fabulous cake. I, in my house, now call it the threesome cake, which is I'm not sure what um, Julie calls it, but it's, um, it's 300 grams of caster sugar, 300 mils of olive oil, 300 mils of... Um, full cream milk, 300 grams of self-raising flour, the zest of... Sorry, the recipe says two lemons, but I use three because it has to be more threes. And then three eggs. How pleasing is that? And essentially, like, the, the, the trick of the system is that you get the 300 um, uh, grams of caster sugar and then you rub the lemon zest into the sugar. So you sort of crush those oils into the sugar and then you just add everything else and just sort of whisk it up and then into a sort of 160 fan-forced oven in a kind of 20-centimetre tin. So and is it a heavy sort of cake or light? No, or it's the... like, it's quite a tall, like because it's a 20-centimetre tin, it's quite a tall cake. And it's golden and, like, buttery looking. It's like a classic butter cake but with this beautiful lemon. And, of course, it's made with olive oil, so you've got that lovely... It is an outstanding, outstanding cake. Because I, like, was so drawn to the beautiful symmetry of the numbers involved <laughs> that as soon as he sent me this recipe, I'm like, oh, my God. I'm, I've also immediately bought that cookbook because it's obviously quality. But it's... And I made it one night where we had like a million kids over and various people and I thought, I've got no dessert, I'll make that cake. It took about maybe 12 minutes to put together into the oven. You cook it for, like, for about 40, 50 minutes maybe. And it came out all risen and golden and beautiful, chopped it up warm and just served like that, nothing else with it. Beautiful. Yum. Okay, sounds good. Good cake. Anyway, I'm persuaded. You mentioned oysters, so <laughs> that allowed me to. Now we've plow got. The cake. If we can lift the house lights, we have got. Um, there's going to be some ushers with some microphones roving around. <laughs> this is really unfair. So I reckon so we could oysters, take about cake, and then. Well, now what are your questions? So oh no, that's right. This is your invitation to attack 
sales for her. Yeah. So put your hand up if you want to ask us something oh and God, we will so raise... so many people in here. That is frightening. I know, it is it weird is. when you... Okay, there's one down here. Um, there's one up over here. So let's start How can with, we even see that Let's part? start with those two and then... I got my first multifocals my last week, by All the right, way. Let's start with up here while you get your microphone down it's here. very weird. Okay, fire away. If you were talking to someone who said they just don't like reading books and you could convince them to read one book, what would it be? Oh, whoa. I would need Are more they... information. Sorry. So... Have they ever liked reading books or they're just coming to it cold? Coming to it cold. Mm, okay. You need, like, some sort of entry-level plot-driven page-turner. So I'm just going back to this kind of things that I read when I was a teenager that would have started me on, like, a reading journey. So I'm thinking, would you give them a... Jeffrey Archer novel or a John Grisham or something like that that maybe they'd be sort of hooked into it and pushed along and then that they because I feel like you couldn't give them um, you know something very literary obviously well I don't know I mean maybe you could really I don't know I'd go like maybe a maybe a Peter Carey I (laughs) you're joking no I'm not even joking now I feel bad no, okay, that's Did the wrong answer. Um, <laughs> Spot's first walk. <laughs> awesome. No, I want to know, why would you give them a Peter Carey? I don't know now. I feel like that was the wrong answer. <laughs> uh, because I just, they were great stories that I, like, Oscar, wow. no, maybe not Oscar and Lizzie. <laughs> Ellie Wacker? <laughs> God. <laughs> I can't, um, I, God, look, I don't want to say anything because I know the form that this podcast has, which I'll get a letter from Peter Carey. I know, that, go, that has become I heard a real you, curse lately. You know, so we talk about a writer I'm who then turns out to listen. Peter Carey. Yeah. Yep. But I've been adorable about Peter Carey so far. Write to Annabelle <laughs> Crabb, Peter, if you're listening. Right to Annabelle Where Crabb. the crawdads sing would be my recommendation, <laughs> I think. Well, actually, <laughs> that you. would probably be all right. What's the first book that you read where you thought, Oh, this is a seriously good book. Like, because oh. you know, like when you first start reading books, I would read anything. Like, Same. I lived in a country town, and so we used to get a mobile library, or you could order library books in the post, and that was like massively exciting. I'd just like go send me some books, and stuff would turn up. Um, so I just read massively indiscriminately, and I felt like I never knew whether what I was reading was a legitimately a good book or not. Like I would just, you know, hoover it up. That's exactly how I read. Yep. Um, but I also, w- what sort of really got me into reading was Enid Blyton. and that's what I was reading when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. so it was heavily plot-driven, which is why I say plot-driven stuff. So, I mean, I was, as a child, big into any form of murder mystery. So Nancy Drew, Trixie Bell, just Mainly that she stuff. wrote herself is what she's not <laughs> mentioning. No, so I would think something that is a page-turner, you'd have to go, even if it wasn't that great, like the Da Vinci Code or something. Like, I don't know, like a page-turner. That's a page-burner, man. <laughs> Tale of Two Cities. Oh, <laughs> Good call. Um, I used to read the Reader's Digest. Like, I used to go to country fairs oh, yeah. and, like, I'd buy them for five cents each and just, like, smash through those. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, all right, down here, whoever that was. Yep. Hello. Hi. Hi. It's lovely to have you both here, so thank you for coming. Thanks That's for having pleasure. us. Um, my question is, I'm a mum of three kids. I work. Um, when do you fit 
in all of the books and the podcasts. Like, literally... That is an awesome question. Sorry, finish it. Um, I'm a bit like Lee in that I like spreadsheets. So if you have a spreadsheet that you could hand out that (laughs) literally outlines when you're doing things, I'd love it. Um, Well, her spreadsheet is about her wardrobe. (laughs) (laughs) I've got lots of thoughts about that. But... um, uh, well, so I read really fast and um, I think if you've got a few kids and a job, you start doing lots of stuff really fast. <laughs> and one thing that actually over the last sort of 10, 15 years, being in a circumstance where I've got like a full-time job, full-time kids and all sorts of nonsense going on and I know that it's that I love reading tendency is you tend to like abandon the things that you love doing I mean you know like the things that you just do for yourself because there's so many other pressing things to do um I just have learned that there is no such thing as a wasted three minutes like even if like who hasn't gone to the toilet and used that time to read a next like crucial couple of pages in your book like I have hidden from my children in dunnies sometimes like <laughs> just and they're like pounding on the door like I'm out in a minute <laughs> it's so bad, but like, or you know, I will read while I'm walking along, which is not a good idea just navigationally, but if it's an area of footpath that I know quite well, then I'll do that, or on the bus, or on the train. And I really like public transport because you can read, and I always read before I go to sleep. So I kind of end up getting through a fair bit of stuff that way, but never, I will never, ever, 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 ever sit down and read for an hour like that never happens it's tops maybe 15 minutes but you know if you deploy your time um sort of cunningly you can squeeze some bits out of the day what about you um I'm also a very fast reader I think that helps um and I'm in the habit from childhood I can't go to sleep unless I read so I have to read as the last thing before I go to sleep so um you know that might only be 10 or 15 minutes as well but um because I'm a fast reader I can burn through a fair bit in that amount of time um I think honestly also I get up very early, like 5.30, 6 o'clock, and because of the way my work life is structured, I do probably a lot of stuff that a lot of people would be doing in the evening, like cooking dinner, doing washing, folding washing, whatever. I do in the morning before I go to work. So I get up super early, I'm listening to the radio, working out what's on 7.30 that night, thinking about what we should get bids in for, I'm cooking the kids dinner, um, I'm getting their lunches ready, I've got a load of washing on, like I'm doing all of that in the morning and then so that means when I get home because I don't get home from work until sort of 20 past eight the children are series asleep. 40 of Survivor. Exactly the children are um, asleep so then I have from you know 8 15 8 20 until you know, 10 PM. o'clock <laughs> or whatever time I go to sleep to do because I've done all the household work in the morning so that's usually when I read or watch tv or do whatever the other thing I think that people don't tell you is because um I'm a a single parent um during the week I rarely go out um so you know I'm home every night and it's not like you're having to have a conversation with someone like how did your day go or whatever so um there's (laughs) it's a lot to be said for not having to listen to somebody else's shit (laughs) You can get a lot of reading done. (laughs) 
Um, and you also have, every, well, I have every second weekend where my children um, go, like this weekend, they're with their father. And so then, like, so unlike you, I did spend, you know, I got the train up from Sydney, which was great. So I did spend two hours on the train today reading a psychiatry textbook, actually. Um, so that's a pleasure. Yeah, and then I lazed around um, in the hotel room this afternoon reading and watching TV and... So, yeah, I actually, I, I don't feel, people often ask, how do you get everything done? But I feel like I'm actually not that short of time. So. Then you had to come here and listen to my shit, though. So I did. there was that. It's like a, yeah. like a marriage. Yeah, a <laughs> <laughs> um, what about, probably got time for another couple of questions, if people want to, if anyone else wants to ask something. If you don't want to, that's okay. Oh, there's one over there. If there's one more. Where? Oh, yeah, down oh, here. Up. Oh, there's an up. Oh, there's oh, an up. Oh, hang on, we've got a flash. Oh, there's light. an up. Oh, oh sorry. No, no, oh, there's a, two upstairs. We okay, had a well, let's pre-established, take. You we'll know, take the upstairs and then the situation. We'll um, take the upstairs and then the two downstairs. Okay, up here. Hi, Lee. Um, not wanting to put you on the spot, just in a but totally. About to. But I loved. I loved where the cruel dads sing. <laughs> in a totally apolitical sense, can you just maybe tell me who the most interesting politician you've ever interviewed is? That's a tough. Well, they're always they're always more interesting after they leave office because then they get more frank. Um, so they're all sort of interesting actually once they're not in there, don't you think that that's uh, that's true? And um, I think, in fact, whenever serving politicians write books, you can always actually carbon date how long they think their future is in office by the degree to which their books are interesting. Like, if they're super boring, like Hillary Clinton's one that she wrote yeah. when she was definitely, like, thinking about running, it was paralysing. And so you'd read it and just go, yeah. she is running, baby. Yeah. Because, yeah, they're not interesting until they leave. I mean, I, I interviewed Boris Johnson when he was foreign minister and I found him interesting because he's just loose. Um, <laughs> Day, and that's unusual for a politician. Did you interview him in ancient Greek like I did? <laughs> no, I did not. David not. Cameron I interviewed the other week, again, post-political life, so I found that really interesting because I felt like he was more frank. And it was also interesting hearing about... I mean, the Brits have such a different take on their climate policy to what we do in Australia, so that was quite interesting to hear the contrast in how they viewed that. Um, but when you've got, yeah. like, an, a serving Australian politician coming into the chair, and, like, I know from having pretended to be you once or twice in your job and pretended to be Barry Cassidy once or twice. Like, there are some where you think, oh, I know exactly how this is going to go. Like, the super under-control ones, like Matthias Corman, who's like a fire blanket. Like, you just, like... <laughs> he's, like, he's like day two disaster guy. Like, the government always rolls him out because he can talk for, like, half an hour without saying anything of note. Like, it's an actual... <laughs> It's, I mean, it's quite a contemporary political skill and that's why he's highly valued um, by, um, by the government in that respect. Simon Birmingham's pretty good too, like that. But then sometimes you'll get a, someone on you think, yeah, this could actually, like, it could be interesting. See, I don't respect the ability to um, just survive the interview without putting a foot in it or saying anything because I think... If you're in politics, you're in the business of trying to persuade people to vote for you. And if your goal is, well, I just want to get through this interview without getting myself into trouble, that's not going to persuade anyone to vote for you. Because I try to ask questions that I think that 
the you know person watching at home might like to hear answered. So I think you've got a better chance of getting somebody to vote for you if you actually engage and try to be persuasive in and logical and reasonable in your answer. Um, so I tend to think people need to be prepared to take a risk and think, I'm going to engage. Because when you think about it, there's no way, given my job, that I can know as much about the topic under discussion as the person sitting opposite me. And I shouldn't, because my job requires me to be across a million different topics in a sort of relatively superficial way compared to the expert who sits opposite me. So if I'm interviewing, you know, the health minister or the education minister, they should 100% know more and have a better command of the subject matter than I've got. So if you back yourself, you should be able to come in and think, well, I'm going, whatever she asks, I'm going to have a really persuasive answer for. And I think if you do genuinely engage, then you're more likely that someone sitting at home might go, hmm, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it like that. But it doesn't Is happen there that often. Who does that? Do you think that you can think of? Um, I, can't, I can't think off the top of my head. I'd have to like have a list of everyone in front of me and go through, and I probably wouldn't yeah. want to publicly critique them like that anyway. But um, it is refreshing. I mean, I I did say last year publicly that the British ambassador or the High Commissioner um, is is the British representative in Australia. Um, Vicky, I think her name's Trudell, came on the program and it was when um, Britain had had to recall their ambassador to the US because he'd sent home a cable that was sort of factual but critical of Trump and um, basically the Americans were so enraged that it just made his position untenable because the cable leaked and so he was recalled and she agreed to do an interview and I was thinking as I prepped the interview, she'll come on and she'll say, oh it's fine, it's no big deal and da 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 and then she came on and she was so frank, she said yes we're appalled by it and I tell you what this will not influence the way we report back home because we're paid to be here to give frank and fearless advice about what's really going on and that is what we will continue to do and it was so um surprising because everyone usually fudges it and she just spoke so directly and so crisply and clearly and bluntly you were like oh great thanks for coming on <laughs> don't need to ask anymore because that was crystal clear <laughs> is she available for pre-selection <laughs> where was Sorry, the other question up here going on and on there was another torch light up here wasn't there, or is yeah, that imagination? Oh, there was. Was it? Yes. Okay. Are you still interested in answering, asking? Yes, you are. Oh, yeah, okay. Muppets, got anything to say? No. You guys have such a fantastic, joyous celebration of friendship, and it's fantastic. Thank you. Can you tell us how doing this podcast has changed your friendship? We save all good conversation for shows and recording. Do you know that, I mean, that is actually weirdly true. Like, I, I mean, one of the reasons why doing this podcast is it doesn't feel like work, it's just a nice thing to do. But, like, the truth is that you probably, or people who listen to all the podcasts probably hear about 80% of our conversations. Like, we do, yeah. well, because we are both super busy and, you know, um, I think sometimes it's a bit misleading. People listen to us and think that we're just constantly, like, going and getting our nails done together or, like, you know, <laughs> or it's like a big Coke commercial from the 80s where we're just like, yay, what about a salad? Oh. Sure. <laughs> like... We just don't really see each other very much no, apart we don't. from when we do the podcast. So it is this sort of completely delightful thing to get together and to talk about what we've been doing. We save things up and sometimes oh, yeah. we'll be like on the phone, 
you know, organising to meet. And was, and even backstage tonight, you know, I was like, what's that Mary Louise Parker? She's like, I can't say anything <laughs> until we're, we have an audience. So it's it's now become one of those weird but relationships I, where it has to be, uh, you I, know, like a... What's that thing where people have sex in front of other people? Like, <laughs> I mean, it's not exactly like that. But like exhibitionist or something. <laughs> Sorry, that's actually a, a it's super a poor analogy. That's true. Like, Our oh. friendship is a form of exhibitionism. <laughs> that's true. Um, I know. I do though. If I know we've both watched something, like say Goop Lab, I, all week I was just thinking, I can't wait to hear Crab talk about it. I mean, you fell asleep. So that's yeah, somewhat that's true. Yeah. disappointing sex, yeah. but. <laughs> <laughs> if only we'd had some mushrooms beforehand. <laughs> All right. Um, but in, in a serious um, response to your question, so it has sort of formalised elements of our friendship in that way. But the main transformation about this podcast has just been this bizarre like, and incredibly beautiful exposure to this vast group of kind of completely delightful people who kind of listen and then interact with each other and then weirdly turn up in vast numbers. It does give you a bit of faith in the world that there are, because sometimes it feels like, particularly when you're immersed in the news all the time, that the world is a really awful place and everyone's mean and nasty and shouting at each other. And so it's actually Get off Twitter sales. It's been incredibly... you know, sort of heartwarming to realise actually there's tons of really lovely, kind, connected people out there who just, yeah, want to connect around things that they have in common, not things that, um, not you know, not sort of sniping at each other over their differences. All right, last two questions on the floor. One up here, yep. Hi, ladies. Hi. Um, I've been listening to The Last Days of August podcast, plus I've also watched the Taylor Swift documentary. And considering that with the conversation on the Facebook page the other day about the language that women use and how they always tend to put their own feelings under others, I was thinking about your voices and how strong they are, particularly in the industries that you're in. And I wondered if that's something you had to grow into or it's something that you've already had, always had. Hmm. I think um, over the course of my career, I have always felt a bit like slightly underconfident about what I do until like maybe a year or two later I think, oh, I'm, I'm okay at this, I can do this. So... Um, so um, I guess that's the slight imposter syndrome thing. I mean, even with this podcast, we always have at least 20 minutes of absolutely wetting our pants backstage going, oh, my God, do all those people realise that all we do is just sit here and talk to each other like there's no actual anything else that happens? <laughs> like, there is no actual value in what they are seeing? And um, I think that, yeah, I mean, um, I experience that all the time. But I think the older that I get, the better that I... I don't know. Getting older is awesome, I reckon. It's like totally underrated. I just feel much cooler and much, you know, I don't know. You get really smarter the older that you get and you get um, better at understanding yourself and others and better at, you know, looking after people and better at looking after yourself, I think. And that's, I mean, that's a really powerful thing. Um, I think... I had a very strong mother and a very strong grandmother who lived with us, and so I think that just the power of their example obviously, you know, rubs off on you, and so I would credit them with being big influences on me. But to be honest, I don't really ever 
think of myself as having like a strong voice because I don't tend to, just because of the nature of my role, I'm not, I don't um, weigh into public debates. I don't, you know, have a voice in that sense because I feel that my role is to just ask questions and allow people to form their opinions. I mean, I suppose people would probably roll their eyes and go, well, you host a, you know, major primetime show, of course you have a voice, um, and I write books and so forth. But I don't know. I don't ever really but think of it like that. But questioning voice is a really powerful voice, isn't it? I, mean, I guess, yeah. Because when really it's not there, like then yeah, that, I that's guess that's true. Shocker, that's true, actually. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, because you do have the power. You have that opportunity to ask questions. So, yeah, um, I guess that that is powerful. But I don't... I don't know, I don't tend to think of it like that. I don't, I've never really thought about that till you just asked it. I just think, I, I just feel like I sort of go along doing what I do, but I don't ever stop and go, wow, I've got a strong voice. <laughs> like, I just don't really think about it. Well, I've been told off by you. It feels pretty strong. <laughs> <laughs> Last, Last question. question. wherever that is. I'm, I'm here. Oh, yep. So, Lee, I have to defend where the cool dads Oh, good. Oh, brilliant. Great. Yeah. I was hoping somebody would. Yes. Okay. Okay, and, let's and hear it. Stand out. Stand up for the exoskeletal sea creatures everywhere. Uh, I'm so, with you. Annabelle, it's true. She undersold it. So, uh, uh, it's a good book, I'd say. It's not a great book, but three reasons. <laughs> three reasons I loved it was uh, you didn't say anything about it. This, this little girl is a survivor uh, yeah. in an extreme domestic violence situation that elder siblings all leave, the mother has to leave. She's left there in that horrible little hut with the, with the alcoholic dad. So somehow she survives all of that. She's illiterate. She's regarded as white trash. So I admired that. Another thing is it's an amazing meditation on nature. Like just the, where she lives in that, you called it a swamp, but it's... <laughs> again, she's underselling it, it guys. <laughs> a marsh, I think they call it in the book. Yeah. But it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, and she becomes an amazing artist about that. And the other thing is she's, she's so marginalised as white trash, but you, you look at the relationships and connections that happen with the, the poor black people around and they help her. The other thing, I went down a bit of a, 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 a what's it called, a rabbit hole, uh, looking at the writer. I can't remember her name, but she's a, fas- she's a fascinating woman to, to find some stuff on YouTube and interviews with her. She lived alone in the desert with her husband or somewhere in over there um, uh, for about eight or ten years. Um, she's a scientist. And so she... Because it's really a meditation on loneliness and she knows all about loneliness. So, yeah, I think there's a lot in that book that maybe you missed. <laughs> what is your name? What's your name, ma'am? Peter. Peter? Peter, you win tonight because I'm going to read that book. Not only because it's about crawdads and I'm a crab, but also because you're taking a piece out of this lady's hide and, like, she is a powerful woman and that is hard to do. And that is what the chat 10 people are all about. Like, you read a book and you don't like it, there's somebody else who's going to have a chat about it. And that's why book clubs are so good because it does, I mean, look, frankly, nothing that you've said has changed my mind. But... (laughs) She's already thrown that book in the bin. I knew that would be the case. You know, a meditation on nature... Oh. <laughs> oh, oh, God. I'm like, you are the worst person. I just, I can't believe, I can't no. believe she got an order of no, Australia. I'm being, I'm being How did that even happen? <laughs> I'm being harsh. Um, no, but I think that's why book clubs are awesome because you do get the full sort of 
range of it. And I love hearing like other people's thoughts because you do sometimes go, well, that, that is true. Like, you know, what you said is true, that it is a meditation on loneliness and survival and all of those things. That's absolutely true. Also a defence of the swamp. No one tell That's Donald right. Trump about that. No. <laughs> Who's defending the swamp? Nobody. Everyone always wants to drain it. <laughs> What about the swamp? Uh, we are going to move this uh, catastrophe out front <laughs> and be signing um, Gwen's merch if anyone wants any. Uh, That's so, true. Yeah, and yep. if anybody else has any other views on any books about oh, which Lee just, Sales has been unkind just, in the past. Can you please just write them on the Facebook group? Thank you. Don't. <laughs> Thank you, Newcastle. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jenny's Place. Please support Jenny's Place. to King's College. I probably shouldn't brag, but dag, I'm amazed and astonished. The problem is I got a lot of brains, but no polish. I got a hobbit just to be heard with every word. I drop knowledge. I'm a diamond in the rough, a shiny piece of coal, trying to reach my goal. My power of speech, unimpeachable. Only 19, but my mind is older. These New York City streets get colder. I shoulder every burden, every disadvantage I've learned to manage. I don't have a gun to brandish. I walk these streets famished. The plan is to fan this fork into a flame. But damn, it's getting so let me spell out the name. I am the A L E X A N D E R. We are meant to be a colony that runs independently. Meanwhile, Britney keeps shitting on us endlessly. Essentially, they tax us relentlessly. Then King George turns around, runs a spending spree. He ain't never gonna set his descendants free. So there will be a revolution in this century. Enter me. He says in parentheses. Don't be shocked when your history book mentions me. I will lay down my life if it sets us free. Eventually, you'll see my ascendancy. And I am not thrown away my shot. I am not thrown away my shot. And yo, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry. And I'm not thrown away my shot. I am not thrown away my shot. I am not thrown away my shot. And yo, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry. And I'm not thrown away my shot. It's time to take a shot. I dream of life without a monarchy. The unrest in France will lead to anarchy. Anarchy. Are you say? Are you say? Oh, anarchy. <laughs> when I fight, I make the other side panicky with my shit. Yo, I'm a tailor's apprentice. And I got John knuckleheads and local parentis. I'm joining the rebellion because I know what's my chance. to socially advance instead of sewing some pants. I'm going to take a shot. And but we'll never be truly free until those in bondage have the same rights as you and me. Right. You and I do or die. Ooh. Wait till I sally in on a stallion with the first black Geniuses, lower your voices. You keep out of trouble and you double your choices. I'm with you, but the situation is fraught. You've got to be carefully taught. If you talk, you're gonna get shot. Bird, check what we got. Mr. Lafayette, hard rock like Lancelot. I think your pants look hot. Lawrence, I like you a lot. Let's hatch a plot blacker than the kettle calling the pot. What are the odds of gods who put us all in one spot? Pop in a squad and conventional wisdom like it or not. A bunch of revolutionary manumission abolitionists. Position, show me where the ammunition is. Oh, am I talking too loud? Sometimes I get overexcited, shoot off at the mouth. I never had a group of friends before. I promise that I'll make y'all proud. Let's get this guy in front of a crowd. I am not 